gonna spoil this because if you still haven't finished Game of Thrones, like, whatever, you don't get to be in a spoiler-free zone. But I'm like, no one wanted Bran. Get out. No one wanted that. No one wanted that. Like... My money was on Brienne of Tarth, okay? I would have... I, that was that was the goal I wanted. I was like, she's going to get pregnant with Jamie's baby. He's going to be the legitimate heir to the throne. It's going to be a whole time. My version was way better. This is Blockbusted, a podcast about the movies we love and how they shape the world as we know it. Hosted by Michael Wolf and Lily Yasuda. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back to Blockbusted, a podcast where we attempt to give you clean audio and talk about movies and, <laughs> and have succinct analysis and probably do a 50-50 good job half the time on whether yeah. or not we meet that mark. And it's hard to know which one, you know, but uh, as we were discussing moments ago, please know that even if the audio you're now hearing is kind of okay, we spent like half an hour trying to make it, it went from pretty bad to slightly better. So um, hopefully you can appreciate the content and not so much the technology that makes the content possible. And if any of our listeners are podcasters themselves and have tips and tricks on how to record a better episode... We are accepting any tips and tricks for the future. Yes, please. This is really not our area of expertise, so it has been a learning curve. So hopefully you're getting like a lot of hot takes, even if they are at like a very mixed level of audio quality. Word. So today we are talking about First Reformed, directed by Mr. Paul Schrader, came out in 2017. Um, mm -hmm. Lily, what do we think? Did we like it? Is it good? Is it important? You're yeah. Up. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. I realize this is our first kind of, uh, non-blockbustery movie. Um, and you know, Michael and I talked a lot originally. It's important to us that we're selecting films that hopefully the vast majority of y'all have A, heard of, but B, seen. I think this kind of analysis is better when our audience is actually familiar with the content. I know we give you a summary to hopefully refresh your memory, but I know I, as a listener, would prefer to uh, like, like have, have seen the content firsthand to kind of make my own decisions. And First Reformed, while it does have Ethan Hawke in it, so it's not like a, a totally off-the-grid movie, is a smaller kind of film um, that some of y'all may not, A, have heard of or have seen. Um, but we, I think we're getting tired of just having a lot of, like, this film doesn't talk about anything interesting. And whatever shortcomings uh, First Reformed may have, I think it seeks to tackle a lot of uh, very different, uh, often rarely discussed issues. So that's kind of why we why we chose that for you this week. And as far as like the big three, um, I think this is a good film. I've seen it twice. Um, and I, I think I enjoyed it more the first time I saw it, maybe just because I didn't know what to expect. And I had not even low expectations, but like no expectations the first time I saw it. Um, I think it's a good movie. I think it's worth seeing. Um, so I did like it. I think it's good. Um, I don't know. I'll be interested maybe as this podcast grows to further define what does it mean for a film to be important? Um, I don't know that this is a, compared to other films, it, it's not a big pop culture moment. So maybe it's not important in that way. Um, 
And as I'm sure, Mike and I, we actually haven't talked about this movie at all. So I, we actually, I, I, our, our respective opinions will be very fresh on this. Normally we do a little bit of gossip beforehand and we really didn't this week. Um, so yeah, I'll, maybe like jury's out on important, but I think it, uh, it is refreshing to me and that it seeks to address a lot of issues and I think pose questions. I don't think it's offering a lot of answers or blanket solutions, um, but seeks to, yeah, ask its audience uh, some some thought-provoking questions, and I think that is important. Um, Michael, what about you? Good? Important? Did you like it? Where? How are you feeling today? Well, the more famous person in this movie is obviously Amanda Seyfried, so uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, like, say, <laughs> you know, I love Ethan Hawke, but everyone knows Amanda Seyfried way more. Um Right. I think never forget Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia 2. Here we go again. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I will start with the important question because I actually do think this movie is important because Hollywood does not make a lot of movies about the climate crisis. Um, this is one of the few pieces of climate fiction, as it were, that we have, uh, which is um, which is which is important to me, um, and is going to be important for my analysis of whether or not this movie meets the mark in a lot of ways. I do like this movie. Um, I think it does pose a lot of interesting questions. I especially around Christianity and faith um, in ways that aren't toxic, like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ or something like that. Um, it's a much more interesting depiction of Christianity than, I don't than the usual the usual shit. Um, I do think this movie is good. Uh, it's very slow though, and definitely contributes to the watch on the first time feeling. The fir- the first time you're you're very excited. Um, I think because you don't know what to expect, and then the second time you watch it, you're like, eh, this, is, "This is a little, this is a little slow." Um, which is part of the style of the movie. Um, it it is using the transcendental filmmaking style of like non diegetic music, uh, really lingering shots, not not moving the camera a lot, just kind of letting, just kind of letting things sit there. Um, which uh, Paul Schrader. And I will also say maybe you disagree. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you disagree with me, but I, this to me sort of successfully walks the line of yes, it is slow. Yes, it is. I would say more of a film than a movie. I I understand people might watch this and think it is a little bit self indulgent, but it is to be very successful for what it is in being a little bit more artsy and being a little bit more uh, slow paced and being a little bit more indulgent with some of its cinematography. Um, that to me really does serve the story and the feeling of the film. And I think a lot of times these smaller, slower movies feel a little bit like, hi, this movie's 11 hours long because you just like didn't want to fucking edit anything out. And I think this is, at least for me, I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit slow, but I was along for the ride. It's definitely not the slowest movie ever. Um, like it's slow with, it's slow with good intentions, I think, um, like, I don't ever feel like it being slow is wasting time. Uh, it's just like, when you don't know what, when you do know what's coming, it it get, it, it is not as rewatchable, I think. Um, but 
you know, Paul Schrader wrote the book on transcendental filmmaking. Um, that <laughs> literally. Literally, literally, he wrote a book on it. And I think he does a really good job. And I, I am not usually a big fan of that filmmaking style. Um, but I think this movie, I think you're right. I think this movie does a great job with it. But not to get too masturbatorial about the craft, because that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about what this movie is saying. Um, so I guess we can hop right into the summary um as it were yeah i think that's the way to go yeah given again i imagine many of y'all may know absolutely nothing about this film so we're gonna try and uh hopefully still keep it compact but uh i think be a little bit more thorough in our summary than when we're giving you like the vague gist of joker um and i'm can i do summary is that okay yeah and i just want to say a little bit about paul schrader for those who don't know oh yeah 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 of course um, so Paul Schrader, uh, for those who don't know, uh, is, was usually a screenwriter. Um, he wrote a lot of screenplays for Martin Scorsese, he, most notably Taxi Driver, uh, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ, um, and then he also, and also, uh, Bringing Out the Dead. Um, and then he got, he, then he got into directing, and he has, he has directed a lot, um, his movies aren't, um, he's definitely on the indie side of filmmaking. Um, but he's, uh, he's very, he's very respected in the industry. Uh, he's a dude who really knows his craft. He's been making, he's been making movies for a long time. He's like 74 now. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely kind of a Hollywood veteran. And I would say, uh, this is bad. I have never seen Taxi Driver. We keep flagging it as like, we should watch this for this podcast, and I've never seen it. Um, but I feel like based upon my understanding of his uh, resume, uh, script scripts both written and films directed to date, um, I feel like this is impressive to me. Or maybe not. Maybe we don't need to give him unnecessary claps, but I appreciate that he is, you know, a white dude in his 70s who I feel has been writing pretty... Uh, complex dynamic stories for decades that I think do pose uh, legitimate questions around society or human behavior in a way that as uh, hopefully we're starting to learn through this podcast uh, is not necessarily normal of Hollywood so again not that this offers this film or the rest of his body of work a get out of jail free card but I do appreciate that like wow this feels like a guy who does have something to say and who's very invested in um yeah, I think bringing real-world issues to the table as a writer, and I appreciate that. Word. Yeah. It's it's really, really interesting stuff. Um, so the cast, we got, uh, we got Mr. Ethan Hawke as the main character, Pastor Ernst Toller. Um, we got Amanda Seyfried as Mary Mansana. Of course, her name is Mary, right? We're making a movie about Christianity here, so. A lot of biblical symbolism in this one. Yeah. Cedric Kyles, um, he's a pastor in this. We got Victoria Hill, um, who is Esther, who is, like, his love interest at the, at the church. Um, Philip Ettinger is Amanda Seyfried's, uh, husband. Um, and then Michael Gaston is Edward Balk, who is, like, one of the church's big mega donors and also a fossil fuel millionaire who is 
killing the planet. Um, and I actually, Mike, Michael Gaston is an interesting dude. Cause you're like, you look at him whenever he's in anything and you're like, wait, I know him from places, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So that's where I will leave it. Uh, summary. Um, so yeah, our protagonist, uh, pastor Ernst Toller played by Ethan Hawke. Also sidebar about Ethan Hawke. I am not like a big fan of Ethan Hawke. I feel like he always plays the same deadbeat dad and everything, which is fine. But like, I'm never like jazzed when Ethan Hawke is in something. And, uh, I think he is really wonderful in this film, which seems to be a widely held belief. Like I think, uh, his particular performance got a lot of buzz when this was being released, but that to me is very deserving where I'm like, yeah, I like seeing a more toned down kind of mature version of Ethan Hawke, you know? I think Ethan Hawke has shit taste in a lot of the roles he chooses. And so that is the role you typically see him in the most, uh, because he does a lot of indie stuff that you don't see him in as much. Um, but he is fantastic playing John Brown in The Good Lord Bird. Really? What is that film about? I'm sorry, don't mean a tangent, but what is that film about? I've never heard of this. The Good Lord Bird, it's a, it was a Showtime, uh, it was a Showtime miniseries, uh, and it's about, it's about John Brown, uh, the abolitionist who led, tried to lead a slave rebellion, um, and actually did, uh, and they took oh. over a military fort, and it kicked off the Civil War, even though it was unsuccessful. Yes, I vaguely recall this from, like, ninth grade history, you know, where I can see, like, the worksheet in my head where I'm like yeah I remember like John Brown being a vocabulary word so that's very interesting I'll have to check that out John Brown um, is like the only so, white person uh, I've ever heard black people talk about with affection like right period. well that that is a high bar <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um but he's he's great uh I know him personally because he's from Kansas so we talk about John Brown a lot really yeah oh that's cool. Yeah, we don't, here in Idaho, we don't get a lot of, like, fun history things that relate to us. You know, like, I guess we get Lewis and Clark, because it was like, oh, like, I remember learning about that in, like, fifth grade or something, where it was like, yeah, a lot of the territory they mapped was where we are now. And then that's kind of it. Everything else you learn about in Idaho is, like, crystal meth and, like, that time we tried to secede in, like, 2012. Like, anytime I see, like, anytime Idaho is on the news, it's never good. You know, they're never like, man, they're making great educational advances. They're like, hey, they're really shutting down civil rights. And like, they have a huge Nazi problem. And you're like, great. <laughs> so proud to be from here. It's the best. It's the best. We got John Brown on the one hand, and then we got the Koch brothers on the other. It's perfect. Um, but oh, I didn't realize you guys had the Koch brothers. That's an interesting dynamic of things to have. Totally, totally. But summary for okay, our I'm viewers. Sorry. We have wandered, <laughs> wandered so far away from the summary. <laughs> Back to the Koch brothers. Stand by. Um, although that is an interesting topic. Um, okay, I'm sorry. So freaking Ethan Hawke is Pastor Ernst Toller, uh, who leads the First Reformed Church in Snowbridge, upstate New York. Um, he's having like a general crisis of faith. We come to find out that uh, he is ex-military. Um, he was married. He pressured his son into fighting in uh, Iraq and his son ended up dying. 
on the front lines. His wife left him, and so that is sort of what has pushed him towards both God and sort of this humble service for this very small kind of historically significant, but certainly run down. It is not a glamorous church. It is not a, uh, a heavily attended service. We don't get the sense that he's a particularly compelling pastor, um, or maybe even that this is something he's super passionate about. Like he's definitely passionate about the history of the church, um, but is uh, he's drinking a lot. He is having a crisis of faith. The film launches with him. Uh, we have sort of a narrative device of him writing in a journal, which he plans to keep for one year and then destroy. So we get a little bit of, uh, yes, perhaps slightly indulgent, but uh, sort of insight into his character throughout the film through these journal entries, uh, which is a tool that he also used, uh, he being Paul Schrader, also used in Taxi Driver. So there's a little bit of a nod to that. Um, the church is getting ready to celebrate its 250th year uh, anniversary. Uh, we come to learn that it was once a stop on the Underground Railroad. So again, ultimately the significance of First Reformed as a church is really in juxtaposition to this big mega church uh, called Abundant Life that becomes sort of the antagonist in the context of the film. Um, so uh, Toller is having this crisis of faith, uh, very sparse services, um, and we, you get the sense this is a guy at the end of his rope, perfect, perfectly primed to snap towards some kinds of radical action, as he will do so momentarily. Um, one day he's approached by Mary, who's a constituent at the church, who's seeking counsel for her husband, Michael, who has recently become a radical environmentalist, um, and uh, uh, requests that uh, uh, Toller go and speak to Michael, um, because she is pregnant, uh, they're getting ready to have their first child, and he is having doubts about whether or not they should be uh, bringing a child into a world that will soon be rendered uh, uninhabitable by climate change. Um, so Toller goes to counsel Michael. There's a really wonderful sequence. This whole uh, film is very much buoyed by a beautiful script, but I find one of the most compelling scenes in the film, certainly for me, is uh, Toller's uh, first attempt to sort of soften Michael's cynicism around the world and this idea of having a child um, and to me really exemplifies like I think they give Ethan Hawke's character a lot of grace in being both a, a true believer and a man of God and uh, and, and a former veteran um, but who also holds I'm not even going to make it like politically liberal views but who feels like a very dynamic thoughtful person right we touch in a very soft sense around issues around say like abortion or as we will get to in a moment climate change um and i think uh, a lot of what makes the story work for me is that he doesn't feel like a one-dimensionally uh for lack of a better word conservative character like he doesn't feel crippled by his belief in god uh which could make him a more conservatively leaning character he feels very dynamic so i digress but feels important for the story we're about to tee up um, uh, attempts to counsel Michael is largely unsuccessful, um, and uh, soon thereafter, uh, Mary pulls him by the house again after finding a suicide vest belonging to her husband in their garage. Um, she is very taken aback by this, has no idea what his specific intention is or where he plans to use it, but the underlying assumption being like, oh, he's been radicalized by those environmentalists, and now he's going to blow people up. And... Uh, Toller is very disturbed by this. He takes the suicide vest so that Michael can't use it and promises to come and counsel him the next day. Um, and then he receives a text from Michael asking for them to go on a walk together. Toller arrives at the site for them to go on this walk and finds that Michael has uh, shot himself in the head and is dead. Um, 
So uh, the bulk of the film then goes to him attempting to, uh, I guess, not make amends, but uh, sort of support Mary through this hardship as a a soon-to-be newly single mother, uh, reeling from her husband's suicide, and the eventual sort of radicalization of Toller as he begins to question his role as, uh, as a pastor, as a man of God, and uh, what this means in relation to the environmental crisis. Um, and sort of will he or will he not pick up Michael's legacy? Um, so uh, in his final will and testament, Michael requests that uh, his service be held at a local toxic waste dump and that his ash- ashes will be scattered there. Um, Reverend Toller get. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, is he a reverend or a pastor? He is a pastor. I know so little about religion, Michael. I'm like, I don't know. The guy with the collar. He is a pastor. <laughs> Um, (laughs) um, this is probably important. Again, I apologize for more religious listeners here. This is not generally my forte. Um, and anyway, so, uh, we, uh, Reverend Toller, pastor, God damn it. Pastor Toller oversees Michael's service, um, and proceeds to get flack from, uh, the, uh, leader of this larger megachurch, um, essentially that like they are implying a political nature, uh, of the church. Um, that Michael represented these more uh, liberal, environmentally centered values, and that it is not the church's job to be caught up in this, um, which uh, Toller pushes back on, sort of crippled by. Um, they meet with uh, this guy named uh, Balk, who is the major donor for Abundant Life, the mega church, which it, uh, an Abundant Life in turn supports First Reformed financially. Um, who has interests and it's pretty ambiguous what his company is right it's just like a polluting company like we don't really know what the company is is that correct um there's a lot of images of like factory pollution but as far as like what they manufacture i was not clear on yeah they seem to there's a weird conflation of like all this like environmental waste stuff that they do um with like fossil fuel production um all you need to know is that they are a wealthy company that is doing some sort of environmental bullshit and they like helped write a law to gut the epa at one point um typical like yeah typical like american environmental issue based bullshit Uh, Toller gets a lot of flack for having attended Michael's, uh, in their eyes, quote, politically skewed service, and is essentially told to, like, sit down and shut up. Um, Throughout the film up to this point, we see that Toller has been experiencing a lot of, like, ambiguously problematic physical pain, which is sort of loosely implied, like, maybe as a result of his drinking. I don't know that I would say he is an alcoholic, but he is clearly leaning on alcohol as a crutch. He ends up going to a doctor who suspects he has stomach cancer and schedules some tests, although this remains undiagnosed. Um, And uh, he, uh, Toller then proceeds to take uh, Michael's laptop, which he stole following his suicide to prevent the police from discovering this radicalism that could make trouble for his wife. Um, And he uses uh, to research some of Michael's concerns, including uh, the materials from this problematic donor's factory, which inspired him to make the suicide vest. Um, 
And as he is doing so, he's visited by Mary at the uh, parsonage of the church. And they have this sort of like moment of like non-sexual, but very sexual, like physical intimacy routine that she used to do with her husband. This is by far the most, um, not outlandish, but sort of like magical realism of the film. I would say the bulk of this film feels very grounded in like normal people on human earth. Um, and there is a sequence between uh, Toller and Mary. There has obviously been a certain sort of flirtatious chemistry between them, um, but essentially where she lays directly on top of him and they look into each other's eyes for a prolonged period of time. And then this is sort of juxtaposed with this very, uh, like, ah, oh, the magic of film of them uh, in their mind sort of flying over the surface of the earth, which sounds very hokey. Um, it's definitely a little bit out there, although I think that the way in which it is executed, I, I thought it was very moving. Um, but I digress. Uh, and they, so, and it's not, they clearly, it's not like they have sex. I did not get that vibe. Um, but there is this breach of, of physical, uh, sort of non-sexual, but sexual touch. Things are weird the next time he sees Mary. Um, she tells him that she would like to attend First Reform's big anniversary service, and he uh, blows her off, really, like, do which she very much interprets as him shutting her down. Uh, again, perhaps not romantically, but him becoming emotionally frigid as a result of their, like, weird moment. Um, but we come to see that this is because he has, uh, he, he plans to detonate the suicide vest at this service and to blow up the donors and the owner of uh, Abundant Life as a sort of like Jesus-y martyr moment. Um, so he prepares the vest, is getting ready to go in for this thing, but sees that Mary crashes the service. Even though he told her not to come, she decides to attend anyways. So he freaks out and takes off the vest and instead wraps himself in barbed wire under his garments and then proceeds to pour himself a glass full of drain cleaner, which he is about to drink when Mary arrives in his quarters and they embrace. There's this very passionate moment where they kiss and we get like a sweet like 360 of the camera around them. Um, it has a very... Um, I would say dreamlike quality, not necessarily in what we are seeing, but certainly in how it is shot uh, before the film abruptly cuts to black, uh, cut out of score, cut out of sound, uh, which is left ambiguous, sort of up to the viewer as far as did Toller commit suicide and die? And this is his final thought before he passes. There's conversation earlier in the film as he and Mary reflect on Michael's suicide about like, what is a person's final thought as they die? Um, so unclear as to whether or not he chose to end his life because he could not live with the grief of what was happening in his community or that Mary actually saves him and they have this passionate moment. And that is the end of the film. So summary complete. Now we can get into the good stuff. Michael, is there anything? I know there are some other small B plots, which for the, what it's worth, Wikipedia did not include in its summary. Hence why I did not include in the summary. There's a small sort of like past romance between Toller and uh what's her name Esther Edith, she's like the choir something director. sad and old-fashioned Esther Esther the choir director that there's like weird sexual tension between them um the uh, main pastor in abundant life is more of a character but in essence if we're sticking to the a story um it's really about uh, Toller's sort of uh yeah reconciling his faith with environmental policies what does this mean for him in what way should he take action and he ends up taking action presumably by killing himself yeah and it's not i feel like it's best to hear about the ending from 
Paul Schrader himself because it's it's uh it depending on how you interpret the ending really depends on what you think this movie is trying to say. Um, and so that kind of makes this conversation a little bit hard. So I figured I would give you Schrader's own words about what this is. Um, because basically we see Mary enter the church, right? When, uh, Toller is prepared, is putting on the suicide vest, but we don't see Mary leave the church ever. Um, we just, what the next time we see Mary Toller is about to drink the Drano. And then all of a sudden Mary is there. Um, like we never, we never see her get up and walk in. So we don't know if it's real. And so what Schrader basically says, he he did an interview with Sophia Coppola um, on the A24 podcast where he was like, basically like, I don't know what the ending is. It can be read either one of two ways. One, that a miracle has occurred and his life is spared. The other is equally, in my sense, optimistic, which is that he drinks the Drano and he's on all fours. He's throwing up his stomach and God comes over to him, who has not talked to him for the whole movie and says, Reverend Toller, you want to know what heaven looks like? Here it is. This is exactly what it looks like. It looks like one long kiss, and that's the last thing he sees. And then Schrader uh, then goes on to explain that in the editing room, he tried to make it look half and half in terms of which of the two possibilities is correct. And uh, we'll link to an IndieWire article that has all of this for you, if you so desire, in our show notes. Um, I think when I first saw it, I thought he was safe, but the more I thought about it afterward, I was like, no, he definitely died. So yeah, that's, bummer. That's where, <laughs> Downer I'm at. End. that's where I'm at. Um, um, so I think there's really, I, I mean, we have a variety of things we'd like to talk about in relation to this film, but I think they really boil down into sort of two main pots. Um, the one being, what does this film say about, uh, both climate change and, I guess the role of the individual in that discussion and then the other half the other pot as it were being um, religion and the role of uh, religious organizations and or entities in relation to climate change but kind of just like personal responsibility in general in relation to religion um, and again I would like to preface this by saying I myself have uh, neither currently nor formerly had strong roots in a religious space um, so I realize that may, you know, curb my thoughts upon Christianity, but I do, uh, knowing that uh, Paul Schrader does identify as a Christian and seems to have, I think, a very respectful outlook upon that. Um, I think a lot of what I enjoy about this film is like treating both religion, like religious uh, organizations and like the concept of a personal religious or spiritual practice as being both legitimate and real. Um, and not that <laughs> this is still a pretty dark film, let me be clear. Um, but I think that for me is a lot of what makes, what makes this story go. Um, and I realize this is a slightly different topic, but I think given that Hollywood tends to skew very liberal in the humans who are calling the shots, I think it's often difficult to like, I guess without making this about like, you should have compassion for 
people who think that Jewish space lasers are real, but like that there is not a lot of ability to like even entertain dynamic characters who skew A, religious or B, conservative. I'm thinking about um, the film Bombshell, which uh, is to me just a bad movie, but feels like such an, which is about um, the whole thing at Fox News the whole Roger Ailes story and the women who came forward against those allegations. And to me, it's just such an uncomfortable, like liberals trying to rationalize why people would work at Fox News and coming up with like, well, they're actually Kate McKinnon and they're secretly gay and they know it's bad, but they just need a job. And I was like, I don't think that's why people work at Fox News. Um, so obviously a tangent, but I guess all to say as far as the more spiritual, religious, heavy, both uh, visual symbolism and underlying thematic value of First Reformed, I think is a lot of what makes this a dynamic story. But I know Michael is going to uh, probably be more partial to the environmental space, and I will uh, turn it over to you to kind of, what do you feel this film, uh, are there ways in which it succeeds, are there ways in which it doesn't in relation to, I guess, both its depiction of and uh, perceived action, or realistically, like, lack, lack action in relation to crisis so tell me tell me we really haven't talked about this like at all so yeah well okay so as far as perceived lack of action on the climate crisis action on the climate crisis i want to get into that in a sec but i do want to validate like why people might like this movie for the reasons that you all just laid out very very well i think because i just you know i um I think even the far left in this country, uh, I think a lot of people are, we live in, you know, we say we live in a secular country, right, for all intents and purposes, but we don't. We live in a Christian-centric one, or we live in an anti-Christian-centric country. And so a lot of people on even the far left of the political spectrum are very, very anti-religion, period, because they've been exposed to Christianity. They think it's toxic. The, and to be fair to them, a lot of Christianity is very toxic. Like you hear a lot that the C in Christianity stands for colonization. Uh, I think I think there's good reason for that. And I want to say like this time. <laughs> Yeah, yikes, right? And I and I want to say that this dynamic of like uh this giant mega church versus like Toller's like small little church is like a very real one, like especially because like you know, we'll talk about the climate stuff in a second, but like in my experience being in climate spaces, being in movement spaces, um you know, I currently like for I am a climate activist, right, which is part of why we wanted to talk about this movie, I think, but like in like currently as we speak, my climate activist stuff, uh, my group Sunrise Movement, we meet at a church and we actually have a close relationship with churches. And I think there are two types of churches there. Uh, the church where we meet is one that has a history and a legacy, right? Like the church that we meet in was where people in Kansas City met to uh where civil rights leaders met to, you know, plan the civil rights movement. Wow. Yeah, and but there are two there are two kinds of churches, right? There are the churches that don't focus on having such a nice like place to worship and like try to put all of the money that they raise from TIFFs or whatever you want to call it. Uh I am not fully knowledgeable, right? But try and focus on on putting as much money as possible in helping the community in following the teachings of Jesus, as it were. And then there are the mega churches, um, of which there are many. And 
they're, my synagogue, you know, even though it's Jewish, did this too, right? That focus on having a nice place to worship, focus on having all the bells and whistles of simulcasts and a nice choir program and tend to attract a different a different crowd and a different dynamic of of entertainment uh, in churches versus uh, versus like this more like personal like like moving through the world and thinking about the world as a Christian kind of dynamic right uh, they're very they're very different and so I just want to validate that for anybody who likes this movie for those reasons like I think that is like a nuanced take that we don't get to see that often around this kind of stuff. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to say that up front and Lily, I'll give you a chance to respond to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess in recognizing a, that of course, neither we nor Paul Schrader are trying to paint that in some linear binary of like, Oh, there's only two kinds of churches or like, no, obviously this is a spectrum, but I think both in the interviews we read, with the director and just an, I don't know, like basic intuition around this issue too. Um, as uh, myself, someone who works uh, pretty heavily in the non the arts nonprofit space. Um, I think it's just recognizing that like at a certain point, once you do work, once you, do, I mean, once you are part of or raising money for an entity that like relies on a lot of funds for programming or outreach or whatever, you just become beholden to the folks who give you money in certain kinds of ways. And again, that that is not inherently like scary and insidious, but that whether, you know, I see this a lot in my work as a grants administrator that you just, or in friends who are say artistic directors for theater companies or other kinds of arts nonprofits that get tangled up and like the board or the donors or like the politics of the thing that like, that those are the people who give you enough money to make the ship go. And that that's very much the picture that Paul Schrader is painting with the Abundant Life Church and with its respective uh, leader, uh, Pastor Joel Jeffries, who, again, I appreciate that I think he's able to make uh, that guy a pretty complex character. It's not that he like doesn't care about his congregation or like isn't also trying to, in his eyes, do God's work, but that he is just a lot more beholden to these big donors. Um, so again, not I'm not trying to eat up too much airtime around this issue, but I think that that is for me a lot of like, wow, that's an interesting depiction, yes, of religion, but I think in recognizing how many, how any kind of large scale organization that generates revenue deals with a lot of these same issues and that we often want to believe that that's like, oh, well, you just shouldn't need big money. And it's like, well, I don't know, man, like you want more chairs, you want an air conditioner, you want, you know, more, more studio space for artists, you want to pay your judges, you want like, well, then you need outside funds and that that often leads you down a road towards some prickly moral dilemmas. Um, so I, a long way of saying, I agree, Michael. I also think this is an important thing for us to talk about. Yeah, and just, and just like, it's especially because like, the link between the evangelical church and the conservative power in this country um, is very, very prevalent, right? And there is this notion of like, you go to church, right? And you're taking care of yourself, but you're not really thinking about your place in the broader world, right? That tends to happen in a lot of evangelical spaces. And I'm, I'm just going to say that up front. I don't think 
I don't think we need to tiptoe around that, right? Like we know that the giant evangelical base is the one that supported Mike Pence being vice president and Donald Trump being president, right? This is a very this is a very powerful force in American politics and you see that here especially because like this political contradiction of where they get their money is from a giant corporate polluter who is killing the earth. Um but so let's talk right. about and yeah I'm sorry, can I just throw out one more thing before we pivot toward the the more environmental aspects of this film? I enjoyed one of the interviews we looked at with uh, Paul Schrader. He was talking about, I I have not, certainly on a day-to-day basis, but maybe ever, really contemplated like the faith-based film industry, which what we really mean is like the Christianity film industry, um, which is not slang for Hollywood. It's slang for like, oh, there is actually a huge market of like very Christian-centric films. but that within like the mainstream Hollywood space, A, I think it's pretty rare to like see stories that treat religion as being in any way like legitimate or interesting at all. Like I guess some movies about old Jesus, like sort of pseudo historical about like Jesus or Christmas or Mary or like whatever. But like as far as like what does that mean in a contemporary sense? as an individual of, of any major religion, as as a Jew, as a Christian, as a whatever, that that's not often seen as like interesting or dynamic. And again, as a pretty agnostic person myself, I guess maybe that's not, I don't foresee this being high in the list of topics I will talk about in my own films. Um, but one of the things that Paul talks about is he says, and I guess in the lines of differentiating First Reformed from the uh, more obvious sort of faith-based film industry, Um, He's like, you know, oftentimes belief is just a product that has to be sold. Just like the image of Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. How do I sell that image? By which I would assume we're thinking about like the image of Jesus on the cross kind of thing. Um, How do I sell this image of faith? And it starts to sound like a product rather than examining true belief. Um, And I think that's very interesting. And uh, yes, does feel like a shortcoming that to Michael's point, we live in a very Christian dominant country, whether or not you'd like to admit that. And I I guess whether or not, regardless of how you feel about that, um, but to, uh, yeah, as the major source of, of mainstream entertainment and by extent, hopefully if you listen to this podcast, you do in fact believe that uh, film and TV uh, both reflects and shapes the world we live in. And that feels like a big blind spot that we're not sort of interrogating what it means, maybe at an individual level to believe, but sort of the role of spirituality in a modern society uh, in general. Yeah. Well, the irony too is like people uh, that I know who have like in the industry, especially folks who crew on faith-based films because jobs are jobs, right? And you got to take them sometimes. They're some of the worst films to sets to work on because they, they don't want to pay you well. They don't treat you fairly. They work you really harshly because, and they expect mm. you to put up with it because you're doing God's work. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of exploitation happening um, within that part of the industry. Sure. No, Definitely. Um, all right, to lead us back towards uh, Terry on the environmentalism space. Yeah, so forgive me if I just dump a little bit of stuff on you and chime in where you need to, Lily, but um, I think this movie is important to talk about because, again, Hollywood does not typically make movies that address climate change. Uh, 
I call it the climate crisis for a very specific reason. It is a crisis. It is happening now to frame us a little bit in this. Um, uh, and I and I want to I want to say that it is happening now. And I don't think this movie does a good enough job of portraying that aspect of it. Um, and that's part of my critique of it. Uh, and typically, when Hollywood does tackle the climate crisis, and this movie is no exception, there is. There are a couple of things that happen um, uh, that I want to that I want to get into. Um, so, for starters, I guess like um, as far as like how this movie chooses to focus on, like like you know, like we the IPCC report says that the United States needs to uh, completely transition off fossil fuels by. Uh, 2030, which for those who are listening is in nine years. Um, that's like, there is like a couple of, there are debates happening about how much that is possible. But the, the, the thing is, is like the climate crisis is happening here and now it kills at a minimum a hundred thousand people annually. Um, there are lots of people on the front lines of the climate crisis right now. Um, predominantly poor people, predominantly people of color, predominantly people who are trans and non-binary. Uh, you know, Texas just had a massive power grid failure uh, this past this past January and February, uh, and it's having another power grid failure right now. Um, the wildfire season has kicked up on the West Coast again, and, you know, uh, they're the Syrian civil war that has caused the largest refugee crisis in human history is linked to droughts caused by the climate crisis. So we are, we are living in a world that is already like experiencing climate um, collapse. And I think part of why it's important to name that is this movie depicts a lot of that uh, by framing this debate about whether or not, I think there is like, I think, it, I think by framing this debate about Michael uh, having, deciding whether or not to have children, right? Which is a valid thing that I, I'm happy to see a movie talk about because I don't think we talk about that enough. Uh, I think, I think by, by framing it as like this, like future thing that this kid will experience, uh, that Michael's kid will experience, I think does a disservice to the fact that this problem is happening now. And also that this problem is solvable, right? This movie never once really seems to mention the fact that, the climate crisis is purely a political problem at this point, right? Like the technology exists. This movie never once mentions renewable energy. It doesn't mention, you know, uh, uh, wind turbines or solar panels uh, and all of the things that 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 can that can come uh, to solve this problem right here and right now. And that really the people standing in the way isn't to some extent, isn't the church, it's the politicians uh, at the highest level of power in the American government who just need, who are in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and can make the decision to transition our society away from fossil fuels. And so in that sense, I, I am kind of frustrated by this movie's climate politics because I don't, I wanted to see, I, I don't, I think it's really important to understand that we are not at the point yet where we cannot, where we cannot mitigate the worst of this crisis. 
uh, like we still have options available to us. Uh, and thinking that we don't does a disservice to the future of the entire human race. And this doesn't depict, a, there's no depiction of trying to build a sustainable future here. And I think, I think Absolutely. I am happy to see people grapple with that question, but that to me is, mm-hmm. is problematic for lack of a better word. I know we yeah, hate the word I, problematic. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think, um, and feel free to correct me if, if you don't think this is quite right, but I, I, I absolutely agree with everything you said, but I think this is also where we start to walk the line between this is a topic, this topic being, I guess, uh, climate change that is so rarely explored in film. While I both agree and recognize the ways in which you know, Toller's and Michael's struggle around climate change or this sort of doomerism of like, there's nothing we can do. Or I I guess if you're like, and the only solution is we should ourselves. Like, you're like, okay, well, that's not helpful. And that's problematic. But that to me goes more into the way in which we talk about climate change as a society more than it is like, man, I can't believe that Paul Schrader was saying this about climate change. Like, I think this is a viewpoint many people have. And I would argue that, at least for me, in the context of First Reformed, this ultimately feels like a story about faith far more than it is a story about, like, like, I don't think we're led to believe that, like, man, Toller has a really great grasp on how we should proceed, and he's modeling good behaviors for, like, this is a very troubled man who has, like, a serious drinking problem and probably has PTSD, um, and, you know, I don't, whether we believe that he actually drank a bunch of Drano and died or just wanted to, you know, I don't think in any way, I don't even really think he's being held up as an anti-hero. I think we're just examining him as a very troubled person. But I certainly agree the ways in which this reflects, I think, larger trends in which we as Americans and maybe just like we as humans currently alive approach climate change as this sort of immovable object of sadness as opposed to being radicalized toward actual action, which is, of course, not blowing people up, but like, you know, a political advocacy. Um with which to like progress in the right direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I, and I think where, I guess where, uh, like that is this, this kind of thing where you get stuck in this doom loop is very prevalent. And there's also a big reason for it that the movie doesn't touch on that I think is so important here, which is like, there has been a concerted effort by the fossil fuel industry, more specifically wealthy people at the top controlling the fossil fuel industry, not the workers in the industry themselves, um, to make you think that climate, the climate crisis is your own fault, that it is, it is that it is on you, right? Like it, we see CNN articles saying like 10 steps you can take to solve the climate crisis or take action on, on, on the climate crisis. And like, that is just mm. not the problem, 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from 100 companies, you know? Right. And I, I, I guess like what, what I see, what I see happening here is like when we, and we could talk for a second about, we can talk in a second about Michael, uh, <laughs> which is a funny little irony of this conversation and like his depiction how Hollywood typically depicts environmentalists. And I don't think there's any exception here to this. Uh, um, But like this, like, I think a lot of people get really stuck um, in general with, 
with uh, taking action in this country, uh, in society, because they believe that they have to go at it alone, that they're not doing enough, that it's their responsibility. When the reality is, is that this is a collective action problem. This is a, this is a problem that requires political change through our government to take action and that like you as one individual person, it doesn't matter how green you are. doesn't matter what you do. Like you are not going to solve this problem. Right. Like if you want to bring your own bags to the grocery store, that's fine. But like, that's not what's causing like mass extinction of endangered species. Like those plastic bags are not like the main issue we face. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I guess I just, I wish this movie like delve into that a little bit more um i think i think it is interesting like the link between the church and like this like corporate polluter um like i definitely think that i just don't know because we don't because we so rarely see these kinds of stories depicted on screen i am disappointed that this is still where climate where climate fiction is is at and i know this movie isn't completely about the climate crisis but i worry that this movie doesn't do anything to help with this 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 fear i know a lot of young people have huge anxiety around the climate crisis and whether or not anything can be done about it and i i want to totally validate that fear and also say that things can be done. And I don't know that this movie is exactly encouraging that narrative, right? Especially if you, if you take the ending at face value, if you, if you take the ending, uh, as this like dream thing where he did die, right? Like right. you're, you're not exactly rewarding that. If you take the ending as this literal where like he gets saved, then I guess, I guess this movie comes out a bit better, but the fact that the fact that Schrader chose to make it ambiguous, right? Um, right. Says says enough about this movie's politics and how Schrader is ultimately leaving you to interpret this. Right, and uh, I guess along similar lines as far as depiction of environmentalism, it's also striking to me. And I mean, maybe you can think of more stuff, but. I was like briefly dicking around with like a pilot concept last summer, uh, sort of around, I don't know, like larger political activism, which I realize is a massive category. And let me be clear to everyone's chagrin, uh, <laughs> this pilot never got too much further than beyond like, I don't know, I have a vague feeling and then it never manifested as anything. Uh, so sorry to everyone. I was like, I'm working on a script. Like, what am I writing? It's hard to know. Um, but, uh, it is shocking to me, especially in like our current political climate, how we don't really see activists of any kind, right? As far as like, uh, of course, the important question becomes what kind of cause are they promoting? But the idea of like political or environmental or social activism is something I, I don't ever see on screens big or small as in within the TV or film space. The only thing I can think of is the hate you give. Um, and I honestly can't think of anything else. Can you? I mean, not that, obviously we have documentary content, but it's interesting, I think, as someone in their early to mid-20s, where I feel like most of what my friends and peers and I think about, um, and or participate in at some level, is this idea of, like, 
social political change, right, through a variety of different mechanisms. But I find it odd that, like, all of the shows, and it's usually shows, we have about, like, young people now. It's, like, fucking, and again, I like Euphoria, okay, and I really like Sam Levinson, but it's, like, man, young people are doing drugs and having sex and feeling sad. And, like, (laughs) to be, like, yeah, but, like, we're not really talking. And not that environmentalism or, or, excuse me, activism or political change is is or should be a burden exclusively on young people. But I find it odd that, like, mains not even mainstream, like, any stream Hollywood, like, doesn't really depict this stuff at all. Or if it does, that it is often in a very negative, um, violent sense, as it is within the context of First Reformed. Uh, but, like, can you think of anything else? Like, isn't that weird to you? <laughs> That's, like, not something we're ever depicting? It it actually it, it absolutely is weird to me. Uh, I think there's a very clear reason for it. The more I do this work, um, but yeah, I just want to say, not thrilled that like I don't think Hollywood has a great track record of depicting environmental stuff ever. Right, like the closest we get to like a good environmental analogy in a mainstream film is like Thanos in the Avengers Infinity War saga, who is like a genocidal overpopulation concerned person. Right. And everyone's like, oh, you can kind of agree with him. And it's like, that's fucking ecofascism. Um, and here we get right here. We get eco terrorism, which is often how like I think environmentalists get depicted as annoying in Hollywood. Environmentalists get depicted at or they get they get depicted as like these annoying like vegan eco people or they get depicted as eco terrorists or both. And like, I want to be clear, I think the environmental movement has earned that reputation. Uh, I think they've completely earned that reputation. The biggest failure of the environmental movement has been to not make the climate crisis a thing about people um, and instead talk about these scientific terms like parts per million or polar bears. Um, because, like, I, right. I always tell people, like, I'm not an environmentalist. I am a climate justice activist. Uh, I've never been camping. I don't get lost in nature. Uh, like, (laughs) right. These are, these are all things that you can, these are all things that like I would like to do, but like, I care about the climate crisis because I care about people. I am drawn to the climate crisis for the economic opportunities, like how many jobs it's going to create to tackle this problem. Like, it's going to require radically rethinking our entire society because our entire society is built on fossil fuels. But to answer your your actual question, why is there not more stuff like this? There, there kind of is. There are some movies. There's, like, Pride, which is this beautiful, like, movie, indie movie that came out in 2014 about, like, these... Uh, gays and lesbians who supported the uh, the miners uh, on strike in uh, the 80s in the United Kingdom. Um, wow. Yeah, it's a really good movie. I highly recommend. There is Matawan, which is um, a wonderful movie. It explains the origins of the term redneck, and it's all about organizing unions uh, in the 1800s um, when they're dealing with, uh, like, racism and building union campaigns and solidarity that way. Uh, so there is there is some stuff, but it's on the very fringes of society. And the reason for that is because the way we talk about history is very wrong. Like, we typically learn about history as this... We don't talk about... We don't talk about activism in history, right? Like, we... We 
we learn about history through individuals, right? In terms of individual presidents like Abraham Lincoln or FDR, both of whom are not these like men who did these great things because they wanted to, right? Like Abraham Lincoln did not even want to end slavery in the South or get involved in the Civil War. He did it because there were radical Republicans that nearly beat him in a primary. And so he felt like he had to take up the cause of abolition because people were organizing on the ground to get him to care about this problem. Same thing with FDR. FDR didn't want to do the New Deal. He did it because there were people striking. There were all over the country. Right. Uh, right, and maybe it's making that differentiation of like, it's and it's kind of C, all of the above, right? I don't think these were people who were like, we don't want this at all, but where it's like, it, it was somewhere between like, yeah, sure, maybe that's important, but that's not my hill to die on. And then it becomes your hill to die on when there are financial assets on board, you know? Well, and so, yes, I think it's very much about sugarcoating f major f political figures or presidents or whatever from our past, and at the same time, implying that, I think generally racially based activism, be it abolitionism or the civil rights movement in the 60s, etc. That there's this belief that these were widely held beliefs and that it was pretty easy for them to get stuff done. You know, that it was like, well, there were some crazy white people who were racist, but everyone else loved Martin Luther King and did everything they could to help him. And now we have a holiday named after him, as opposed to like, he was actually like a, a majority of people did not support Martin Luther King. He was not a widely beloved figure. And it is a lot of that context. I mean, MLK is an easy example, but around all kinds of different communities that I think the way in which we are taught American history even as someone who I think went to, a, who I think had a, certainly for the state of Idaho, had an, a, a better than average education and access to resources. And there is still a lot of like looking back and being like, yeah, people kind of struggled and then everything was fine. As opposed to seeing activism in its many forms as an ongoing thing that we are still participating in, the winds of which are often rapidly eroded or difficult to quantify. No, you're totally right. And I'm glad you brought up the civil rights movement because the best example I go to for this is Rosa Parks. Uh, Rosa Parks, you know, right, the right, woman right. who gave up her seat on, who gave up her seat on a bus, who refused to give up her seat on a bus, right? And kicked off a big part of the civil rights movement, right? Uh, very inspirational figure. The, a lot of the ways we talk about Rosa Parks and remember her are like, she just got really mad one day and decided not to give up her seat. That's not what happened. Rosa right. Parks was an no. activist and an organizer who met with Martin Luther King. She was planning this. She was chosen to do this action on this day because they were like, hey, you're going to get arrested and you're going to go to trial and we need somebody who can handle that. Like there was, there was planning involved. It wasn't the spur right. of the moment, like people had enough kind of thing. It's <laughs> right. And I think the film right. and not that there, I'm sure there weren't incidents where people did, were just fed up and had, had enough and were like, fuck you. I'm not going to do that. And those people probably got shot or sent to jail. And we don't know about those people because folks who stand again, whether that's to bigotry or racism or sexism, like those are not generally the kinds of things, certainly in a pre social media world that could be easily cataloged or spread to the press, you know? So it's not that individual people weren't fed up and probably tried to push back, but that the ult the long-term, I, I guess not to imply that their actions were meaningless, 
Um, but the, the sort of like, right, and those people changed the world. It's like, well, overwhelmingly, I assume those people just went to jail and we have no idea who, what their names are or who they were. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There are a lot of people who are political prisoners um, from the Black Liberation Army, Black Panthers, who are still in jail right now. When we even when we talk about Martin Luther King, right, we don't we don't talk about the fact that the FBI was the one who spread this rumor of adultery with his with his wife. That the FBI was the one that killed him. We don't talk about the fact that he was working on the Poor People's Campaign when he died. Like he was thinking. He was thinking beyond this, like, version of racism that has come to mean, like, individual right. prejudice against people. Uh, right. And I don't, I, I don't think the film format either, uh, especially around the climate crisis, really lends itself to talking about this very well. Like, uh, one of the biggest people I know in Hollywood who's really concerned about the climate crisis is Adam McKay, uh, who directed, you know, Anchorman, other guys, uh, but then... <laughs> then later the big short um mm -hmm. and, and like vice. and vice and vice yeah and like he is somebody who i think w has come close to figuring out a formula to talk about this a little bit more right with through the big short but there's this like the thing about the climate crisis is like uh there's this thing that naomi klein who is a major climate activist says uh like the climate crisis is like this like deep involves like deeply knowing your community it's the it's the swallows or the birds that migrate a little bit later each year it is it is uh knowing that like before the solstice happened it was like so fucking hot this year and the ways that it normally isn't right and it's interesting our ability to totally normalize like you know, we, we, we talk about COVID-19, we talk about the pandemic and how much we've normalized, like, a mass death of 600,000 Americans that was preventable, right, and uh, could be coming back around again. And it's the same, it's the same thing with the climate crisis, like our ability to, because it is, because it is sometimes so intense, but then also happening slowly over time, right, there has not been an urgency around it, in a way. And, and so it's, it's very, I think, especially when you're, when you're talking about like the film format, right. And the notion of the protagonist, right. Like how do you as an individual depict all of these systems and this long change that's happening that caused this. And like, even if we like, just from a standpoint of organizing, it's like, like what we're organizing against is the entire system, right. Because that's, what's causing this. <laughs> So how the fuck do you right. write that in a screenplay effectively? I don't know. Right. And I know we've talked a little bit, uh, I think on the Inglorious Bastards episode about um, like the problems around individually focused. Uh, what am I trying to say? Around the idea that the classic Hollywood story centers around an individual protagonist who you know, uh, fights after a singular cause and the ways in which framing uh, huge systemic inequalities or problems around an individual person, even if that individual person is, you know, uh, the leader of the Black Panthers or the president of the United States, like, is inherently very limited because it cuts out our ability to see this as a widespread problem. And because I think we tend to, certainly around political films, uh, like looking at you, Aaron Sorkin, and not in a bad way, but if, like they're usually courtroom dramas or they're set in the White House. 
and I mean this far outside the parameters of uh, the West Wing, um, but that they and that those are people who are very insulated from the day to day ramifications. Even if we're giving these characters, be they real or imaginary, a, a true sense of compassion, empathy, desire to change the world, that that is you know probably a bunch of old white guys in an office. Um, and no matter how eloquently written they are, or, or, or again, whether they're real or imaginary, the, the, we believe these are people who care about the issues at hand. That is generally the template for stories about political issues or wide-scale change. And it's very rare to see stories, again, I mean, and whether or not you want to interpret this as like, oh, we, it's rare to see stories about communities of color. It's rare to see stories about communities of lower income people. But I'm like, it's just rare to see stories that are political that are not set in a quote, like political uh, framework, like aesthetic. And I think that really hinders the type of stories or even the way we can conceptualize of, uh, I guess, communal change, you know, and that that sort of becomes like, well, I don't know, the president will fix it. Or like, well, I don't know, we missed the boat on that, as opposed to seeing like I, the individual, as being a part of a larger movement in a way that can feel productive and also contemporary that we're not just looking at, I think, most political films. Again, looking at you, Aaron Sorkin, not that other people don't do this, but they tend to be around the past. It's like, let's examine World War II. Let's examine the Carter administration. Let's examine, and we don't, not that I'm like, we need a movie about Donald Trump. I'm like, who the fuck wants to watch a movie about Joe Biden? I'm sorry, probably no one. Um, but that we don't tend to frame that in like a, wow, the world as we know it. And so there's able to be not only a level of distance that like, oh, it's a group of old white guys in a room with the door closed, but and it's a bunch of old white guys who are now dead. <laughs> and that we can look back and be like, that was a wacky time that somehow doesn't involve us <laughs> as like thoughtful people in modern day at all. And I think that is a, a shortcoming. Yeah, no, that's totally right. I mean, like, okay, like when you talk about people who are like, I don't get political, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get political as if like everything about our lives and the way we live them is the right. result of political decisions. Like it, it's, it's kind of, it kind of boggles the mind. And it's, it's frustrating to see Hollywood often limit political questions to the realm of like our political government. And, and political figures who are prominent but like the thing and part of the frustrating thing about being an organizer right is constantly running into people and trying to meet them where they are and tell them like hey like we don't give a shit about your level of experience with politics or anything we just know what's right and wrong and we need you to know what's right and wrong and that you can be involved in changing this thing too. That's a lot of the work we spend doing is like telling people like, hey, the fact that you're here is enough. Um, because I think a lot of people interpret like politics and like life through this like weird thing of like, well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert enough to talk about this. I don't want to talk about politics. Like, like I have to have all of these qualifications and all of this shit and run for office. Sure. And I, I think I think that is a really harmful I think that is a really harmful sentiment, um, and the way to look at the world. And as far as like form formats that I think can actually tackle this question effectively, I think T V is a great format for this kind of stuff. Uh I'm very disappointed by the end of Game of Thrones. Uh 
but I think there is no better... Jesus a- fucking Christ. There's, there, yes. There's no and better allegory for the climate crisis than than the White Walkers, right? Like, right. they were really on to something there. Like... Right, right. And that the only thing you can actually unify a bunch of very... Uh, people with radically different outlooks, beliefs, familial ties, whatever, is to unite them against a common, perhaps evil is extreme, but, but against a common issue. Um, yeah, no, totally. And I like that they were just like, surprise, and the White Walkers are solved in one episode. And then in the end, it turns out soft power is the answer. And I'm like, was it? Like, I'm like, that does not feel like the thesis of this show. <laughs> like, they were like, you know how the whole point of the show is like, oh no, we can't decide who should be in charge. And then in like five minutes, they're like, what if we all just universally agree that this guy's in charge? And I'm like, why didn't we do this earlier? And also, why the fuck would you pick that guy? Okay, I'm sorry. And you know what? We're going to spoil this because if you still haven't finished Game of Thrones, like whatever, you don't get to be in a spoiler-free zone. But I'm like, no one wanted Bran. Get out. No one wanted that. No one wanted that. Like... Uh, my money was on Brienne of Tarth, okay? I would have... I, that was that was the goal I wanted. I was like, she's going to get pregnant with Jamie's baby. He's going to be the legitimate heir to the throne. It's going to be a whole time. My version was way better. Or... The, well, also, the lords get together and choose uh, one of the lords to be the representative. It's like, the, it's like hey, we're not going to have monarchies anymore, but we're just going to have oligarchy. Like... There's, there's so much wrong with Game of Thrones. We've gotten so far away from First Reformed at this point, but, like, I think that's to say, like, the, I think, I guess, I guess, like, if we were to loop this back to First Reform, my thing is, is, like, when we think about, like, like, a lot of people don't think about what a movie is selling, right? So if we're looking at the blockbusted angle on this, right? A lot of people don't think about what the movie is selling. And so then when we do get a movie that is actively trying to embrace like the most urgent political questions of our time, even even if this movie isn't entirely about the climate crisis, right? It's about a crisis of faith. It's about it's about what it's like to be in the church and dealing with these things. Like because this movie just mentions the climate crisis, right? It gets our attention and praise. Um or uh you know, for, for, for talking about the thing that no one wants to talk about, right? And I think, I think we need to really interrogate why that is. Definitely. And I think my, perhaps if I were to attempt to answer that question, um, I, I guess with a, with a very meta response, um, but both in regards to this film, I'm sure we can say uh, stories around uh, the climate crisis, but I, I think maybe it just goes back to this idea of like stories that are trying to tackle usually systems of oppression at some level, but if we were to make it slightly less douchey, like films that are really trying to ask a question is just very rare because I think the idea of a movie asking a question, a legitimate question, a question to which there is not necessarily a clear answer, um, is something that, like, as an industry, we really reject because certainly, I mean, I guess mainstream Hollywood, but really just, like, the template of how we understand screenwriting is so about a singular character pursuing a singular goal, and the question is, will they succeed or fail, right? But it's it's pretty rare that we're actually trying to define the terms of their quest. And so what I mean by this is, 
the ultimate thesis of most films tends to feel, as we go back to overly simplified the podcast or like all the stuff we talked about with Inglourious <laughs> Bastards, like the, the ultimate thesis tends to feel something like love conquers all. Or home is where the heart is. Or <laughs> you're fucking Quentin Tarantino. Racism is bad. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Hot take. Thank you for this. Um, but that we don't generally define like, so So what does love look like? Or uh, how, in what ways are we all culpable in a system of racism? Or, right, you understand where I'm going with this, which is to mm-hmm. say that like, we spend a lot of time on the structure of like, oh no, how will... X person find true love or how will X person win the race or how will X person, but the, we, we t- assume that the terms of the quest itself are obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a huge disservice in how we talk about everything from religion to sex, to racism, to whatever is that we assume like, Oh, but everyone understands what rape is or everyone understands what bigotry is, or everyone, like, but we don't. That's why we're still grappling with these problems. Because if racism was just one white person being rude to one person of color, then we would not be in the pickle we are in, right? And the reason we're here is because this is actually a very, like the actual terms of how do you define the issue we're trying to overcome is in and of itself ambiguous, complicated, uh, difficult if not impossible to pin down yeah and i guess where i'm trying to go with this in relation to first reformed is no matter how imperfect this film may be and you know michael you've certainly pointed out some of the ways in which the dialogue about climate change is flawed or inaccurate or just deeply pessimistic and unhelpful um this to me feels like a film that's really trying to just ask some questions and is not here to offer us a lot of answers um and I think that is rare. And we are often, as an audience, I can say certainly with myself, are often unsatisfied by that because we want to feel either like, oh, the, the person got what they wanted or, oh, this validates that like, yeah, racism is bad. Or even I loved Parasite, but I think Parasite ultimately answers its own question. You know, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. man, class conflict, am I right? And you walk away and you're like, yeah, class conflict is bad. Which I'm like, yes, that is real. But, um, and again, I love Parasite. I think it's a very uh, cerebral, well-executed film. But I don't know that it leaves me a lot to ponder in a sense of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just don't, I guess if we're going back to like, oh, why do we not make more films about activism or climate change? I think it's because writers are uncomfortable and or deeply disincentivized to tell stories where they're actually asking a legitimate question that is not, are Nazis good? Like, you're like, no, Nazis are bad. I don't need to interrogate this question any further. Yeah. Well, when it's funny, when you're talking, what comes to mind for me is um, uh, Annihilation, uh, directed by Alex Garland. Uh, it's a rude yes. movie. I actually uh, work for the, the company that made this. Um but part of uh, the thing, part of the thing about Annihilation, right, um, was the the ending of Annihilation is very ambiguous, and you don't walk away with clear cut answers, right? And so you are you are getting kind of asked questions, and there was a huge fight over Annihilation and its release because uh, test audiences were not understanding the movie, and so the studio head uh, got into a huge fight with the director Alex Garland and. The producer Scott Rudin, who defended Garland, uh, because he was like, 
this movie is too intellectual. Like you need to, you need to make it more, you need to change the ending. You need to make it more clear. Like audiences don't like this. Um, and what ended up happening was they defended it and they got to keep the original ending, but basically the movie got released in theaters, uh, here domestically and entirely internationally. The movie was released on Netflix. Um, and I don't even think this movie stayed in theaters for that long. And, you know, there is, there's so many things to talk about in it and we're definitely way over time here, but like where it, where it ended up going, right? Like, like we can, we like, I, we can talk about like the studio heads fear that like no one's going to see this movie um, and how they didn't know how to market this movie to ask questions uh, or um, the, even the valid reality of like, I think we as people have been trained to think that we need to have a story that gives easy answers. Right. Um, like there are, there are so many different levels to like, what was the fault of this whole dynamic? Uh, but that's kind of what comes to mind for me, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah. And I, and I, maybe, maybe the closest thing to some kind of answer or food for thought for our listeners and maybe even for ourselves, I think is being, as we parse out in these episodes, like, did you like it? Is it good? Is it important? I think as a viewer and not in like an overly pretentious way. And this is not me saying that you should convince yourself you love movies that you thought were boring and stupid. Um, but being able to like consume media that maybe you don't enjoy that it's not fun. Um, but that I'm trying to get better at like watching a film and being like, wow, that was very thought provoking. And maybe I wouldn't watch it again. Maybe I didn't love it. I mean, I didn't enjoy the ride. Um, but I think we need to get over the tendency to, uh, do what I do, which is watch, watch 7,000 hours of kitchen nightmares because I'm like, man, they really undercooked that chicken. Am I right? And I'm like, this has no <laughs> educational or cultural value at all. And that it's fine to like enjoy media in all three of those spaces, right? To have kind of guilty pleasures of things that you really enjoy, to be able to, I don't know if it's important to you. I am someone who's very anti the film canon, like the AFI 100. I just could not care less about any of that. And so stand by for like 7,000 episodes where we debunk that shit. Um, but yeah, being able to recognize films that are culturally relevant and also, you know, maybe films, the thesis of which you don't agree with, but that are, are that are taking an attempt in posing some, some new information. And I think that's certainly my stance on First Reformed. And I would say if you haven't seen it, um, it's, a, it's a pretty dark ride. But I think it's worth seeing. And uh, if you if you have a, a smart friend or a cool partner with whom you might have a good dialogue with, I think it's uh, it's definitely better watched with another person. Totally. Full send on that. And I want to bring us back to our first episode where we were talking about kind of like uh, what what is the role movies play in society, right? And like this whole notion of entertainment and you can't see me because it's a podcast, but I'm using air quotes around entertainment because we don't I think we could feel the air quotes there. You could. Okay. Good. I felt them. I felt the air quotes. Good, good. I'm glad uh, all that theatrical training I got over the years really paid off. Right. Um, it's like, but, but like, but like this notion of entertainment and what is it, what does it mean? Right. And how do we think about these movies and why do we not, why do we not teach visual literacy uh, in school, but also do why do we not teach people to have opinions about what 
something is trying to say and whether or not we agree or disagree with that thing, not just analyze it, but like, how does, how does that thing align with our values? Right. And I think a lot of organizers and activists don't like Hollywood, um, because they, uh, they see it as this propaganda arm for like this, like national myth making of so many things in our society that just don't add up. And that's not to say like, you can't enjoy this stuff or think of, or, or like, you know, want to be entertained. Like, I think, I think there is value in being able to like do that. And also I think recognizing like the stories we tell about ourselves do matter, do have an impact, right? That's why we care about like, that's why the conversation about representation in film has come so far, right? And we can debate all we want about like how far it's come, right? And if that's good enough, and we certainly will in later episodes, right? But like, the notion, the notion that like movies don't matter, that the stories we tell, the questions we ask don't, don't matter. And not just like the questions we ask, but how we ask the questions, when we ask the questions and why we ask the questions. Right. And I feel like I'm rambling at this point, but I guess I'm just, I'm just trying to say like, I think, I think Lily's points are completely well taken about like how to think about something critically uh as as a movie and like how we approach everything yeah turns out we're pretty smart you guys (laughs) (laughs) we do have some interesting takes (laughs) uh all right well i think that's it from us but um we are trying to be on a more regular recording schedule so hopefully you'll uh hear us in your living room your car uh your dining room sometime sometime soon in the coming weeks and uh thank you all so much for listening Blockbusted is an independently produced podcast created by Lily Yasuda and Michael Wolf. Our theme song is Retro Future Clean by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Music, or anywhere else you choose to get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, and if it is on Apple Music, take the time to leave a positive review so other listeners can find us. If you have thoughts, comments, or future episode suggestions, feel free to reach out at blockbustedpod at gmail.com. That's blockbustedpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.